John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Let's read together and hear the word of God. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Amen. Let's unite our hearts together as we come to the preaching of God's word. Let's seek his help. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you already for the privileges that we've entered into in the joys of corporate worship, the refreshment and the watering of your word for our souls, the reminder from 1 Samuel to not trust in the might of man, to not trust in the strength of our own hands, but to rest and to trust in the strength of the Lord, who does all things well and in his good time. Father, we thank you for the joys of singing. And now as we come to attently give ourselves to the study of your word, to hear the truth that your son declared so many centuries ago and that your spirit has inspired for the good of your church throughout the ages, we pray that you'd humble our hearts. We pray that you would grant us a sense of trembling as we come to the holiness of your word, that we would give it our reverence, that we would give it our care and our attention, and that we would heed your word. Father, we pray that we would all, without exception, follow Christ, the light of the world, that we would follow him to heaven and to eternal life, that we would not trust in our own wisdom, that we would not trust in our own darkened understanding and thoughts, but that we would look to Christ who is the light of truth, the light of life, our prophet who leads and guides us and gives us safe passage to the glorious world that is to come for those who trust him. Father, we pray that for all of us here. We pray for our children that they too, at their young age, they would look to Christ as their light, as the one that they follow, no matter what the world follows, no matter what the world tells them to follow, that they would would close in their hearts with Christ. We pray, Father, also for any 
who are here this morning who are not believing in Christ, not believing the Gospel, change their hearts. Open their hearts to see their need for guidance. Their need for spiritual illumination. That they would find in Christ the wisdom of God. Father, send Your Spirit, we pray. Teach us, edify us, build us up. We thank You for worship. We pray that You would continue now with us. Give us Your presence and cause Your face to shine upon Your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up again in John chapter 8. And John 8 obviously follows chapter 7, but it continues the same context. Namely, we are uh, right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this is one of the feasts in which God in the Old Testament commanded His people to celebrate. And it's a feast that the Jews would, in which the Jews would remember God's protection and guidance of their fathers in the wilderness following the Exodus deliverance. And there are several customs or rituals that the Israelites would, have done, or would do at this feast in order to commemorate and remember how God was faithful to their fathers in the wilderness. One of which was there was, were great customs involving water in which they would celebrate the, um, how God provided Israel with water from the rock in the wilderness. And that, no doubt, was the backdrop uh, that um, the backdrop behind Jesus' words telling the crowds to come to Him that they may find in Him the fountain of living water. But a second thing that they would have done was the lighting of candles and the lighting of great lights during this feast to remember the pillar of fire which led the Israelites in the wilderness. And in doing so, they remembered God's faithfulness to Israel by which He led His people out of the dangers of the wilderness and into uh, the promised land, salvation. And it's now in that context that Jesus speaks these words in verse 12, in which He says, I am the light of the world. So it's not just an analogy that He's pulling out of thin air. There has been, during this, this feast, an object lesson already being presented, and Jesus now takes that object lesson and applies it truly to Himself, saying, I, Myself, am the light of the world. Now, there are a couple, at least, a couple noteworthy things from this statement. Number one, just the words, I am, taken by themselves, is an appropriation to Himself of the divine name that God revealed to Moses in the, book, the beginning of the book of Exodus. When God revealed to Moses His name, I am who I am. Before God sent Moses to deliver His people from Pharaoh and from Egypt, what He does before He sends Moses is He distinguishes Himself from all the other gods of all the other nations as the God who simply is. Not the God who was becoming, not the God who would become, but the God who is. That from the beginning, 
before there was anything but God, that He is the eternal, self-existent fountain from which creation and salvation flows. And Jesus now picks up on that name and says to these uh, Israelite crowds, I am the light of the world. It's a a stunning assertion, and we'll we'll open that up a bit in our, our doctrine section. But second, the second thing in these words, just as noteworthy, is the context into which Jesus makes this declaration, right? When and where you say a thing gives context to the significance of what you're saying. Um, and here, Jesus is at a divinely appointed feast, the focus of which is on the Lord's gracious deeds towards His people, the focus of which is the water that God gave to Israel, uh, the protection God gave to Israel, the light that God gave to Israel. And it's in that context that Jesus steps into the limelight and He says, I am the light of the world. Which implies a superiority of the light that He is Himself over the light that they're celebrating. It's superior. He's superior. One, notice he says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is not just the light for the Jewish people, but rather as Isaiah prophesied, the Messiah is to be a light unto the Gentiles, to the whole world. But secondly, second sense of superiority, by declaring this statement at this feast, He is asserting that He Himself, the light that He brings to this sinful world, is a light that eclipses the pillar of fire by which God led Israel. And this is obviously the theme of fulfillment. We've seen this all throughout John's Gospel. Just as in chapter 6, He made the statement that He is the bread from heaven the true bread that the Father gives that surpassed in every way the manna that God gave Israel in the wilderness. So now He's saying, I am the light, the guidance, the truth which shines brighter even than the guidance God gave Israel in the wilderness. Now, what does Jesus mean by light? What does He mean when He says, I am the light of the world? Light, light can and does mean different things. It has different connotations in the Scriptures. For instance, sometimes it emphasizes God's moral purity. That God is light and in Him is no darkness. There's no sin. There's no corruption in God. But here, as is confirmed by, by the words that follow, here, Light refers to the light of God's truth which guides His people to safety and salvation. You think about it in terms of the, the type of, of the wilderness wanderings. That's what the light in the, in the wilderness was doing. It was leading Israel physically through this, this dangerous, dark world to the places of God's salvation and, and safety and protection. And uh, that's what Jesus, even in these following words, makes plain that that's what His meaning is. He says, I am the light of the world. And He continues, He who follows Me 
shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's not talking about physical light, saving us from physical darkness and wanderings. He's talking about the darkness of being lost in sin. Being blind to the way that leads to salvation. Uh, How the sinner by nature is stumbling around in the darkness, unable to find his way towards God and the way of salvation that brings peace with God. This is, Jesus says, the state of all who are outside of Christ. We are all of us, by birth and by nature, spiritually speaking, wandering and just feeling about in the darkness without a compass to the way that leads to everlasting life. That's true of the religious person and that's true of the irreligious person. You think about it, these Jews were some of the most devout people to religion. And yet, even though they had the covenants, they had the law, they had the promises, they had the worship of God, you name it, they had all the external privileges, Christ says without a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, they did not have the light of life. And that's true for every single one of us. Apart from saving union and saving knowledge of Christ, without us seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are lost in darkness. And that's, that's one of the things that pokes these religious leaders in the eye. Is that they think that because they have all the privileges, that they have light. And yet, as we'll see in chapter 9, with the miracle of the man born blind whom Jesus restores his sight... Jesus says to them, you're blind. And later in chapter 8, they're going to protest to Jesus' words and they're going to say, we are are children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus says to them, yes, you are. You're enslaved to sin. And unless the Son sets you free, you will remain lost in darkness. It doesn't matter if you cling to Moses or Abraham if you don't believe in the one whom, of whom Moses wrote and of whom Abraham looked forward to and rejoiced in. And then, the rest of this section, that's the introduction, his statement of I am, I am the light of the world. And now the rest of this section is simply the, the religious leaders challenging his authority to make such an assertion. Challenging his authority to make such an assertion. So pick up in verse 13. They say to him, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your testimony or witness is not true. Now, that is not a valid statement. Okay, That's not a valid deduction. Just because someone bears witness of themselves in their own behalf does not mean that their testimony is not true. Now, it is true that the law required two witnesses in order to legally establish charges against someone, but that doesn't mean that if there aren't two witnesses to establish something, that that means the person is automatically lying. In fact, you think about it, 
Think about the case of virtually every prophet that God has ever sent. They are they always come bearing witness of themselves because they're not sent by men, they're commissioned and sent by God. Which is why, by the way, God attested to his messengers with signs and wonders, showing that God did indeed send them. And, and that's something that Christ himself has already amply shown by his works. And so, by saying to him, you bear witness of yourself and therefore your testimony is not true, they're applying to Christ a standard that would disqualify even Moses from being a prophet. Because he came bearing witness of himself. And so Jesus, verse 14, he answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going you judge according to the flesh. Okay, so let's follow his argument. He's saying, even if I were the only one who bore witness about myself, which I'm not, but even if I were, I am qualified to speak truly about myself because he says, I know where I came from, heaven. I know who sent me, his father, and I know the glory to which I am returning. And he says to them, if, if I didn't know that, if I, didn't, if I was ignorant of my own identity, then yeah, I wouldn't be qualified to speak on my own behalf. But I'm not ignorant. And then he says, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That is because of their willful ignorance. They, re- they refuse to believe him even though he's told them. And he says, you judge according to the flesh. And this is what we've seen earlier in chapter 7. You judge according to face, according to appearance. They have already concluded because this is a man, because we know, they think, that he comes from Galilee, we know therefore he cannot be the Christ. They have made a premature judgment in the flesh and they have presumed that he is guilty without hearing his case. Jesus then says to them, he says, I judge no one. Now, he either means by that, I judge no one as you judge people. That is according to the flesh. That's one plausible interpretation. Or he means, and I think this is more likely, he means I judge no one by myself. And I think that's more likely because it fits with the following statement. Verse 16. He says, and yet if I do, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So there's, there's two levels of argumentation he's giving here. First of all, he's saying, even if I do bear witness about myself, he's saying that his own authority is a sufficient grounds for his testimony to be believed. But the second line of argumentation he's now giving is, but that's not even the case. He's not the only one who bears witness. But rather, he says that his judgments are even more confirmed 
because the Father who sent him is with him and also bears witness. Now that raises the question, in what sense is Jesus saying that the Father bears witness of him? I think there's several, several things we could, if we had time, we could go to different places in the Gospel of John. But I'll just give you two briefly. Number one is what we will see, what we have seen and will continue to see in the Gospel of John is the unity between the Father and the Son. The Son was sent at the Father's command. And the Son came willingly, and therefore everything the Son does, He does at the behest and the command of the Father. And you remember we saw that in chapter 5. When Jesus declares that the, just as the Son does nothing apart from the Father, so the Father does nothing apart from the Son. There's perfect unity in the acts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, when the Son judges, it is also the Father's judgment, is what, what Christ is saying here. That's the first way that the Father bears witness of the Son. But secondly, and this is one that we've already seen very plainly, for, uh, for instance, in chapter 5, the works that the Father gave the Son to do bear witness that the Father is well pleased with the Son and bear wit bears witness to the Son. So, the works that Christ has been performing throughout His ministry, what those do is that all along, every word He speaks, there is this secondary attestation from the Father that this One is indeed sent as the Son of the Father. And so, Jesus, knowing this, that the Father Himself bears witness, Jesus, like He did uh, last week, He throws their own law at them. The law that they profess, these, these religious leaders profess to, to obey and uphold. He appeals to their own law and He says, according to your law, it also says that the testimony of two men is true. And that's what the law does require. If someone's going to establish charges against someone in, a, in an important matter, especially of capital punishment, it requires the testimony of two men. And the implication here that Jesus is saying is how much more the testimony of God Himself. That it's not just two men bearing witness in His case, but it is the Son of God Himself bearing witness of Himself and also the Father backing Him with His attestation. And then they again, as we've seen so often, either out of blindness, spiritual blindness, or out of malice, they misconstrue His meaning. Verse 19, they said to Him, Where is your Father? Now, as I say, they, they either do this out of just spiritual blindness, they really don't understand, which I tend to think is unlikely, because at the end of this chapter, they'll be stoning him, because they understand perfectly who it is he's saying he is. But uh, more likely, this is malice, and they are purposefully twisting his meaning because they know or they think they know something about his questionable origins. And so, they say, where is your father? As though they want to call his human father to give an account. And 
What's ironic about that is that they're again pretending like, okay, if you produce another witness, then maybe we'll believe you. But we already have seen that's not the case. They already have the witness of the Scriptures, the Father, Jesus' works. They have His own witness, the voice of the Father bearing witness at Jesus' baptism. And more than that, in not too long, they will see Jesus Himself rise from the dead and they will still not believe Him. And so, Jesus answered, verse 19, You know neither Me nor My Father. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. Notice He doesn't answer their question. They ask, where is your Father? He doesn't doesn't enter into that discussion with them. He simply states, a true knowledge of God is a knowledge of both Father and Son. And whoever has the Son has the Father, and whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father. And he's saying to them, essentially, even if I told you of the glories of my Father, you would still reject Him too. Because you reject the Son whom whom the Father has sent. And so, in a very real sense, what we're seeing here is Jesus is refusing to throw pearls before swine. He's refusing to throw the glories of truth continually before those who continually reject those pearls. He knows their hearts are hardened, their hearts are blinded, and therefore he refuses to continue on in the discussion. And then finally, lastly, just verse 20 concludes, gives us the context. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Now, that that concludes our exposition this morning. Let's turn our attention now to doctrine deduced. How are we doctrinally instructed from this text? What does God teach us? Last week I focused more practically uh, in our doctrinal section. This week I want to focus on two things, theological, and then finally uh, our third thing, more, more practical in the Christian life and for the, the unbeliever in seeking Christ. And so I have, I have three things that I want to give us this morning under the section of doctrine. I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, number one, we are instructed in this passage regarding the deity of Christ. Okay? We are instructed in this passage regarding the deity of Christ. That is, we are taught explicitly here of the full divinity of the Son of God being co-equal with the Father in power and glory and truth. And, to go further, it's not just something that's contained in this morning's passage. It is something that is repeatedly, by the lips of the Lord Jesus Himself, peppered throughout chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Chapter 8 is not one of the better known chapters in the Gospel. And ironically, it's one of the highest clearest declarations of the deity of Christ. The I am statements. I briefly alluded to this in our our exposition and I want to go further, a little bit deeper in our doctrine. 
the I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John and in this chapter are not merely statements of being. Like when I say I am a man or I am a Christian, they are explicit, purposeful statements of divine being. That I am the great I am. And Christian, it is vitally important for us to see this and to believe this so that not only we give to Christ and ascribe to Christ the honor and the glory that He deserves, but also so that we can teach those who are caught up in damnable error and heresy so that we can teach them the indispensable and undeniable truth of this this key tenet of the Christian faith. That our Savior is without qualification and without equivocation. He is God our Savior. I mentioned Exodus uh, Exodus chapter 3. When the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God who at the beginning of Genesis 1 is the Creator and the fountain of all that is, when God reveals His name to Moses, He reveals it to Moses as I am who I am. When Moses asks Him, when I go to your people and I tell them the God of your Father sent me, And they ask His name, what do I say? And He says, tell them, I am sent you. That name describes God. It describes the eternality, the independence, the aseity, and the self-sufficiency of God. Right? God's names aren't just random. They, They describe God's character. And, you might know this, you might not, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint, which Jesus and the Apostles were well acquainted with, the Greek Septuagint translated that Hebrew phrase, I am who I am, with the Greek phrase, ego eimi. Some of you have heard that before probably. Literally, I am the one who is. I am the The being one. And again, it's the same idea of a description of infinity, of boundlessness, uncreatedness, unbecomingness. And the striking thing is that Jesus Himself in the flesh, in John's Gospel, takes that title, Ego Eimi, to Himself again and again. I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of heaven. I am the good shepherd. Here in chapter 8, I'll just just show you some of the places where this is peppered here. Verse 23. He says to them, You are from beneath. I I am from above. You are from this or of this world. I am not of this world. Now, that already has the ring of divinity to it, doesn't it? That Jesus is clearly making a distinction between himself and other men. 
But if that's not explicit enough, Jesus goes on and makes it more explicit in verse 24. He says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am... Now, many, not all, but many English translations supply and add the word he there. Maybe yours, yours might do that. If you do not believe that I am he... But I think that, I get what the uh, translators are trying to do, but I think that takes away from the significance of what Jesus is trying to say here. That unless you believe that I am, period, that I am the I am, you will die in your sins. It's, it's a declaration of deity and divinity. Again, uh, verse 28, same construction. You will see the Son of Man and know that I am. But most explicitly, which many of you are probably well familiar with, is at the end of chapter 8 here. When finally, they're, or at least they're making it known now that they're, they're picking up exactly what Jesus is saying about Himself, jump down to verse 53. They're getting frustrated with the importance Jesus is ascribing to His person, Himself. And they say to Him in verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? And He says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My day, and he saw it and was glad to which they are obviously taken aback by, or taken aback, and they protest, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They think these are the words of a madman or a blasphemer. And his answer is astonishing. One of the most undeniable claims to deity. Verse 58, Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was. Notice, he doesn't just say, yeah, I actually do go back to the days of Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood perfectly what he meant by that. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He could have said that. But here's the thing. If he had said that, 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 would, have asserted, that would, have, would have asserted that he's more than a man, a man, but not necessarily that he is God. Right? That would be true of an angel, for instance. An angel was there when Abraham was there. But he deliberately attaches the present tense to lay claim to being none other than the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they understand exactly what he means because they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Eternal God, I am in the flesh. And that's why he is qualified to be the light of the world. Because the light in Him is not, it's not just a creaturely light. It is the divine light. 
revealing to us in this dark world of sinners the fullness of God in human form. That's the first thing, doctrinally, is we're instructed about the deity of Christ. That brings us to the second thing this morning, doctrinally. Secondly, related but distinct, secondly, we are instructed in this passage regarding the distinction of persons within the Trinity. Okay? We are instructed in this passage regarding the distinction of persons in the Trinity. That might not be something you initially read this text and thought that's, that's where we're going to go here this morning. Um, very interesting, the early church fathers dwelled on this passage and on others like that. I'll make a comment about that. In the same breath that Jesus declares himself to be the great I am, that is, the God of the Jews, he also in the same breath distinguishes his person from his father. I'm, look specifically at verse 17 and 18. He says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And then verse 18, I am one who bears witness of, my, of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Two distinct witnesses, Jesus is saying. And this mysterious as it is, I grant that, but this agrees perfectly with what, with what we've seen even from the very beginning of John's Gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. There's a distinction in person. And the Word was God. Unity of essence. So at the same time that Jesus declares Himself to be the I Am, He also appeals to the Father's testimony as a distinct testimony from His own. And in fact, He even roots that in the law's requirement of requiring two men to bear witness. And Christian, this is a text, it's certainly not the only one, but it is a text that flies in the face of what's called Sabellianism, if you want to use the early church, that's, that's what the early church called it, uh, after Sabellius, who introduced this idea. Or in our day, the more common term is modalism, which, by the way, is far more popular in our day than maybe we realize under various forms. And as I said, the early church fathers appealed to this verse and others like it in order to instruct their people and to denounce heretics who tried to distort the concept of the Trinity, God in three persons. Now, there are many ways that someone can go wrong on the Trinity. More ways than one, definitely. Arianism gets it wrong by denying the first point that we saw Namely, that the Son of God and the Spirit share equally in the divine essence with the Father. Right? So Arianism gets the Trinity wrong by subordinating the Son and the Spirit as something less than the Father. They're like God or they're a God, but they're not God like the Father is God. 
That's one heresy. Modalism, though, on the other hand, gets the Trinity wrong in that it denies the plurality of the persons within the one essence. Okay? Modalism teaches that God is not three distinct persons, but rather that God is one person who acts in different modes at different times. Sometimes as the Father, like in giving revelation. Sometimes as the Son, like when dying on the cross. And sometimes as the Spirit. But think about it. Jesus' argument and assertion here would fall absolutely flat if that were the case. Because He and His Father would not be distinct testimonies of two distinct persons. They would be the same person giving testimony at a different time and in a different way. Augustine, I'll just close this point with Augustine's quote. He said on this verse, he said, The Son is one person and the Father another person. They do not, however, constitute two beings, but the Father is the same being that the Son is, that is, namely, true God. That brings us to the third doctrinal point that will kind of launch us into our application. Number three, under doctrinal instruction, more practical here um, for the Christian and for the non-Christian. We are instructed in this passage how desperately we need Christ to guide us to eternal life. We are instructed in this passage how desperately we need Christ to guide us to eternal life. And this speaks, we speak of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, right? The three offices, the Old Testament gave them in types and shadows. We've seen them in Samuel and Saul. Christ is the fulfillment of those offices. But this passage and this declaration particularly emphasizes our need for Christ as our prophet. A few weeks ago, um, all of our children doing the catechism were in the section on Christ's offices. And the question is, why do we need Christ as our prophet? And the answer, as direct as it is, and somewhat funny because of how it's worded, is simply, because I'm ignorant. <laughs> and that's exactly right. Why do you need Christ as prophet? Why do I need Christ as a prophet? Because I'm ignorant. You're ignorant by nature. That is the the darkness that Christ is talking about here. It is the walking in the spiritual darkness of sin and blindness with regards to salvation and the things of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, He's exhorting the Christians and he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And he then describes how the Gentiles walk. And he says, don't walk as they walk in the futility of their minds. Having their understanding darkened. And being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness 
and greediness, with greediness. That's not even exhaustive, and it's a very, very poor picture Paul's, Paul paints of the sinner by nature. The heart, the state of the heart without Christ is a dark place. It is an idol factory. It is like a, a pit bubbling up with sin and truth suppression and misplaced affections and misplaced worship. Everything in here, because of the fall, it's just been shaken up so that everything is mixed up and confused. We don't by nature know how to save ourselves. We don't know how to escape from the wrath to come. And we don't even realize we need to be saved from the wrath to come. We're, we're like those um, sea creatures that live at such depths in the ocean where light doesn't even penetrate. That we, we by nature become so accustomed to darkness that we don't even know what light is. We don't even know we're stumbling around in futility that will lead to destruction. Children, I want to give you uh, a picture, an analogy. And this is for adults too, but kids, you'll relate to this. It's like, imagine if you, some of you still take naps. I know the older ones don't probably. Some of you adults take naps or wish you could take naps. It's like with my kids, they fall asleep in the car. I pick them up, put them somewhere. They wake up having no idea how they got there. Pretend that happened to you. And you fall asleep. And while you're sleeping, someone takes you. And they they don't take you to your bed. They take you to a dark field somewhere. And you wake up and you have no idea where you are. You can't see anything. You don't even know where to start walking. Because everything just looks like darkness. And you don't know if that way will lead to danger, or that way will lead to danger, or maybe that way will lead to safety. You don't know. That's what our hearts and our minds are like when we don't follow Christ, who is the light of the world. And I mean that, children. Listen to your parents who instruct you in the way that you should go. If we just stick to our own thinking, and I know the temptation, if we just think, no, I want to follow what my heart says and what my heart wants. Children, Christ is telling us here, we will never find safety if we follow ourselves. We will spend our whole life tripping and stumbling around in sin's traps that will eventually lead us to destruction. But, when we follow Christ by reading and listening to His his Word, it's like you're in that dark field and it's like all of a sudden you look into the distance and just this giant bright spotlight all of a sudden beams down on your house. And you look in the distance, and even though it's far away, you, you can tell, that's my home. That's where my Father is. That's where safety 
is. That's where I need to get. Kids, Christ illuminates heaven to us. But He does even more than that for us. Because think about it, even if all of a sudden you're in this dark place and you can see your house in the distance, you still can't see which path to take to get you there. You don't know which, which way to start taking to make your, start getting, making your way home. And what Christ does for us is He not only illuminates heaven, but as we read His Word, He shines light upon our path so that we can get there safely. And as we read His book, and we read His promises and His warnings, as we read of His instructions, suddenly it's like the light of Christ's Word illuminates the path in front of us. And He tells us, this is the way to heaven. Pilgrim, go this way. Don't wander off in the paths of darkness. Don't follow the shininess of temptation in the shadows. Stick to the path that I have illuminated for you. And it's amazing, as we walk and we follow Christ, it's like His light of truth continues to go before us to lead us all the way safely to heaven. That's what it is to know Christ and to believe Christ and to follow Christ. He has gone before us to our heavenly home and He now from heaven assists us and guides us Each and every one of us, young or old, everyone who looks to Christ, He guides us on the safe paths that will get us there. His Word and His Spirit are a lamp unto our feet and a guide to our path. His Spirit at work within us through His Word conquers within us our desires for the darkness so that we stay on the safe path. And when we stray, which we do, when we wander foolishly into the dark paths for a time. He doesn't abandon us, but His Word humbles us, His Spirit humbles us, and brings us again back into the way that leads to life. And the child of God walks by faith, day by day, by faith in the Word of God knowing no matter where Christ's paths lead me, no matter what pain, what torment, what affliction it might bring, at least I know I'm walking in the light. And I can see where I'm going, that these are the paths of righteousness, and it leads to the place of righteousness. And I know Him who leads me, that He will never deceive or lead me astray. That brings us to our application this morning as we come to a close. I've got just one simple application related to that third point of of doctrine. One simple application. Christian, I'm speaking to the old, speaking to the young, everyone in between. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. You think about it. What a comfort it is that God has given us in love 
a Savior to follow. You think about it. Some of you go hiking. When you're all alone and you're on a path that you've never trekked before and everything's new, it can be a frightening thing and a nerve-wracking thing because I don't know where I'm going. I've never done this before. I've never been this way before. But when you have a guide with you who has walked the path before you and who knows where they are going, you're at peace. Christian, Christ is our faithful guide. And therefore, listen to the words of His book. Listen to the words of His book. I think... I think oftentimes Christians, we separate the Scriptures from Christ Himself. Christ and the Scriptures ought not to be separated. They ought to go hand in hand. But Christians, genuine Christians, we do this. And we hear sermons about Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditation, Bible devotion, you name it. And even though we might never say it, we can think to ourselves, I want something more personal than that. And I wish I could follow Christ like the apostles of old. That I could be with Him physically and I could hear His rebukes and I could hear His, his instructions and I could sit there with Him. And, and, and we think to ourselves, I'd feel safer that way. But Christian, this book that Christ has given us is not a dead letter. These are the words of our prophet to us, His church. One of the things I love about Pilgrim's Progress, I'll make another uh, shameless plug for Pilgrim's Progress. Read that book. Read it with your kids. Bunyan, I mean, it's a, just a brilliant work, obviously. But one of the things that Bunyan captured so well in Pilgrim's Progress is how often and how affectionately Christian refers to, quote, his book, my book. And uh, as his friends and his false friends and his foes and everyone in between, as they're, uh, as they're speaking to him, he'll often just say, it's written right here in my book. Let me read it to you. Read it for yourself. And when he quotes his book, you can tell that in his mind, he's he's quoting, he's quoting it as the loving personal direction of his master, telling him the way that he should go, guiding him, caring for him, watching out for him. And you could just tell in Christian's mind, these are the words of my God to me to guide me safely to where my God is. And Christian, when we, when we talk of the Scriptures and we think about the Scriptures and how they're a light to our path, a guide to our feet, we're talking about the personal words of the covenant-keeping God to His people. The Puritans would, would speak that way. Uh, the, the Puritans would sometimes speak in ways that if we heard it today, we would think that's mushy. Um, Edward uh, Reynolds said that all the promises of God 
are the beams and rays of Christ, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. Meaning, the emanations of Christ himself, like the sun's beams and rays, are Christ's promises to his people. Um, Another Puritan uh, spoke to his congregation about how the scriptures are God's love letter to his people. And, and that's where I say that if, you know, modern writers were to say that, we would just write it off, and that's just, you know, emotional, modern, whatever. But honestly, how else would we describe God's Word to His people? Is it anything less than God's loving and compassionate care guiding His people? That's what the Scriptures are. It's Christ's love emanating from Christ through His Word, guiding His people to safety. I think of soldiers at war. When they receive, usually few and far between, letters from their loved ones back home, what do they do with those letters? They hang on every single word. And they read them again and again, and they keep them, and they pull them out, and they study them, because they know, even though they're not here, the person on the other end of this text is the one who loves me. And therefore, reading their words is hearing their love for me. That's how we should relate to the Scriptures. Cherish God's Word to us. His commands are not burdensome. His commands are good for His people. They are the instruction of an all-wise God who knows what's good for us, and they come to us from a, a God whose heart is full of goodness towards us. When we read His restrictions, we must remember this is not coming from a God who is a killjoy and wants to ruin every hope of happiness I have, but rather this comes from the wisdom of God who knows the destruction of sin and actually wants my supreme happiness. Christian, pay attention to God's warnings and threats in His Word. All of God's Word is good for us. Like any good parent, He sets boundaries for His children. He knows the heartbreak of sin and the despair that it leads to. His rod is for the good of His children. And, Christian, lay up, lay up in your heart the promises of God. Not just listen to the instructions, heed the warnings, but lay up in your heart the promises of God. How many are the promises of God to His children? Every promise God makes to us is a declaration of His goodwill towards us. Of what He will do in bestowing upon us either some temporal or eternal spiritual benefit for our good by following in the path of obedience and love to Christ. One Puritan spoke of the promises of God as though God has a bag full of gold coins and He just turns it over and dumps it out. And he says to his children, here, take as many as you want, for they are all yours. When sin promises joy in life, we need to remember, no, 
God's word promises joy in life and actually delivers it. My, my book doesn't deceive me. Sin and the devil deceive me. They promise happiness. They promise joy. But Christ's word actually stands fast. In his light, I will see light. And therefore, I will cling to his paths and follow where he leads. Let us resolve ourselves in response to God's word to give ourselves to God's word with love in our hearts, thankfulness in our hearts, and diligent attention given to the words of our prophet guiding us to our heavenly home. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless us and keep us. We pray that your word would become more and more precious to our our hearts. We pray that you would turn our hearts away from fleeting gain and vain things that they would be captivated by Your Word. How precious are Your thoughts, O God. How gracious are Your thoughts. How loving is Your guidance. Father, thank You for giving Christ, who is the light of the world, who is our light, who guides our path through the darkness, teaches us the way of eternal life, Father, we pray by Your Spirit, we ask that You would strengthen us in the inner man. That we would resolve to follow Christ. Lord, we pray You would make us uh, more quick to distrust any other path. Cause us to remember that all others are imposters. That they are mere hirelings. We pray that we would follow Christ's voice. That we would listen and hear Him and obey Him. Father, thank You for Your mercies to us. Bless our, the remainder of our Lord's Day together. Bless our, our time of fellowship and eating together. May we strengthen one another in the Lord. We pray that our, in our afternoon service we would be instructed again. We'd be encouraged in Your ways. In all the kind ways that You deal with Your people. Bless us, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Amen.